Today is the beginning of my fourth teaching on Paul's secrets to happiness. And I tell you, we've been covering a lot of really, really good material. Basically, I've identified 20 things that I call Paul's secrets to happiness. Actually, you could, uh, of course, come up with more. I just, you know, there's no specific inspiration for just 20 secrets. Matter of fact, the very last thing I was teaching on was out of Philippians chapter 3. And in verse 13, he says, but this one thing I do. And that's what I was emphasizing, that if you really want to be happy, fulfilled, and a success in life, you need to find out what God called you to do, that one thing, and focus on it and not be diffused, multitasking. If you want to destroy a man's vision, give him two. And uh, that is a powerful truth. Uh, Let me just say that, you know, there could be many more. I'm just going to mention this quickly, but in the 14th verse, he says, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I don't have this listed as one of his secrets, but I believe it is one of the factors involved in happiness, and that is that you need to have a goal that you're pressing towards. So this isn't number 13. This would be like 12B, amen, because of the way that I've ordered it. But it's it's worth mentioning that if you really want to be happy and successful in life, then you need to have a goal, something that gets you up in the morning, something that you're working towards. You know, I've known many people that when they retire, they basically just start doing nothing. Playing golf, which I like playing golf. I'm not against playing golf. Traveling, I love traveling. But, you know, if that's all you do, if you don't have a purpose, if you don't feel like you are making a constructive difference in doing something. I have seen people retire and their health and everything just goes downhill quickly because I believe it's therapeutic for you. It's actually healthy for you to have something that gets you up in the morning. You know, there are times that I just like anybody else, you know, uh, have to encourage myself to stay on track and do things. But it really helps to know that I've got people that I'm touching, that there are people that are depending upon me to do what God is calling me to do. Like you can see that in many ways, but in our Bible college, you know, if I, if I didn't get up and come in and teach my classes and do things, it would throw people off. There's people that are depending upon me and it gives you a motivation for getting up and going and doing things. You need to have a purpose. And Paul said that he was pressing towards this mark. So even though I don't have that listed as one of these 20 things, it certainly is a factor that you need to have something that gets you motivated, a reason to get up, a reason to to get dressed and to get going and to do something because people are depending upon you. You're accomplishing something. There's some goal that you want to achieve. I think that that is very important in living a happy and satisfied life. Let me drop down to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17. He said, Brethren, be ye followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. And so in verses 17 through 21, what I believe was another factor in Paul's uh, happiness is the fact that he said, follow me. In other words, you got to follow the right person. There are people that are suffering grief and having problems in their life, not because of anything in particular that you are doing, but it's the people that you associate with. And boy, right here, I'm going to open up a can of worms because I'm going to say some things that I believe are true, but things are so out of whack today. People are so far from following these guidelines that Paul is talking about that they have created huge problems and uh, it's going to be a very hard fix. But that doesn't undo the fact that the people you associate with have an influence on whether or not you are going to be happy, whether you succeed or not. You know, one of the obvious examples of this is in the area of marriage. 
There are people that marry very poorly and they don't follow God's guidance. They just go out and they marry the first person. You know, there's people that have, uh, they get pregnant outside of wedlock and they just feel obligated that I've got to marry this person or something and they they are thrown into relationships and I guarantee you that's going to cause grief. Now, I'm not saying that you can't overcome that. I could give you many, many, many examples of people that have been unequally yoked together in marriage. I don't even believe it was God that ordained them to get married, but nonetheless, they are married. They have made this commitment. And you know what? God can redeem that situation. God can change the hearts of both parties and God can make it work. But I am saying that especially if you aren't already in some relationship, you need to follow the guidance of Paul right here and you need to be careful who it is that you follow. Paul was saying, follow me. Follow my guidance. There's a number of places. First Corinthians chapter 11, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. There's a number of times Paul said to follow me, use me as an example, but he specifically said, follow me as I follow Christ. And I don't believe that Paul would have wanted anybody to just follow him blindly, contrary to some scripture. But that's how confident Paul was that he was walking in the Word and doing what the Word of God says, that he told people to just follow me. And so it's important who you follow, who you consider to be a leader or a person that speaks into your life. And again, I'm not trying to criticize any one group or anything like that, but I've had many, many, many people come to me and ask me to pray with them about multiple things. One of them's healing. And they will just say, I, I'm struggling to receive my healing. What's the problem? And sometimes I've been led to ask them, so what kind of church do you go to? Do they believe in healing? Do they support you? Do they encourage you in your stand for healing or are they fighting against you? And often people will tell me, oh no, these people think that all healing is of the devil, that this stuff, it, God doesn't do this. I'm constantly criticized. And uh, they will sit there and wonder why things aren't working. It's important, the people that you associate with, and they have influence on you, whether you realize it or not. You know, I've always, I've run across people that are always telling me that, oh, I'm strong and I can go to this church and it doesn't affect me and stuff like that. It says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe it's verse 33, it says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. If you're saying, oh, I can go to this place and listen to doubt and unbelief and people do things that are wrong and it doesn't affect me, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 33, you're deceived. The Bible says evil communication corrupts good manners. If you're listening to the wrong stuff, it does affect you. If nothing else, even if you don't buy into what they're saying, you are going to be critical of the things that you've heard criticized so much. It's going to make you skeptical. You aren't going to be abandoned to it. You won't have the same degree of confidence and boldness in it as if you were constantly being reaffirmed and your values and what you believe the Word says was being reaffirmed. I'm telling you, you need to be following the right people. I minister to thousands and thousands of people who have come up to me, and I just read an email last night of somebody who said they've been born again for 30 years and seeking the Lord and studying and going to Bible studies, going to church. They've been active, and they said they have learned more in just a matter of months than they have learned in 30 years. And they said, it's things that I've never heard. I've never heard anybody else teach it. And they said, and yet it bears witness. I find it in the Bible. And they were saying that for 30-something years, they had been missing out on some of the blessings that God wanted to give in their life because they just hadn't heard the Word of God. It's important who you follow. And this is what Paul is saying. So if you're truly going to experience the joy and the happiness that God wants you to, you got to make sure that you are surrounding yourself with people who are building you up and encouraging you instead of tearing you down. Now, I don't believe that this means that we're supposed to go into a monastery and totally lock ourselves off from the world. Uh, the Lord said in Matthew chapter 5 that we're the salt of the earth. And if we're the salt of the earth, if we're the preserving part of the earth, if we're the one that gives 
flavor to things on this earth. We got to get out of the salt shaker. I don't believe we should be in a monastery. I don't believe we should just be totally walled off and fearful and trying to avoid any contamination from the world. But at the same time, I don't believe we ought to be just totally immersed in the world to where we are letting them dictate to us and we are being influenced more by the world than we are influencing them. You know, I'm not going to take time to turn over there, but in the book of Acts, you can find where Paul went in and preached in the synagogue for three weeks. And man, it caused a great, uh, you know, response and people begin to respond. And after a few weeks of him doing this, then they begin to openly speak against him and his doctrine and the things he was saying. And when they spoke against him, then he took the disciples and separated them and went into the school of a man named Tyrannus and disputed there for years and taught the disciples. Now see, he would go into a place that was not preaching the true message of Jesus being the Messiah but they allowed him to do it for a period of weeks. And as long as he could be free to speak and present the truth and they weren't criticizing it, well, then Paul associated with these people. But when they began to openly speak against Jesus as being the Messiah and begin to criticize, he separated the disciples. To me, that is a scriptural precedent for how we're supposed to interact with other people. If you're waiting to find a perfect church... You'll never find it. And if you did find it, if you joined it, it would immediately become imperfect. So I'm not saying that we have to have a perfect church, but we need to at least associate with people that aren't antagonistic. They aren't speaking openly against us. They aren't criticizing us. They aren't trying to beat us down. There is room for us having difference of opinions as long as there is still freedom for us to express what we believe, freedom to pray for people without being criticized that that's of the devil and stuff like that. But when people are openly opposed to it, the scriptural precedent of Paul is to separate yourself. And this is what he's saying right here. He says, you need to be followers together of me. You need to watch who you're following. One of the reasons that the Apostle Paul was able to rejoice and praise God is because he was following God and following His direction. He had not been led astray. At one time, when he, before he got converted, he was led astray into the extreme Jewish law and stuff like this. And he wasn't happy and he wasn't rejoicing. But now he was in the right direction and he said, follow me. And he, he was talking here about people who were not necessarily... Uh, non-believers are non... Well, let me. what I'm looking for is he wasn't talking about people that were just totally secular. He wasn't talking about, you know, remove yourself from the Romans way of thinking and from worshiping Caesar as God and stuff like this. He was talking about people here who were claiming to be Christians. They were people who had embraced Jesus as the Messiah. These were not unbelievers, but yet they were people who he said right here in um, verse 18 that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. I could go into a lot more detail on this, but basically the cross of Christ was talking about the grace of Christ. In other words, Jesus at the cross paid for our sins and offered us right standing with God as a gift, not as a reward or a payment for our holiness. And the terminology cross of Christ, I could take time and show you this, but he specifically contrasted in the legalistic way of doing things where people were trying to earn God's favor through their self-righteousness versus receiving it through what Jesus did for them on the cross. So this is what he's talking about. He's talking about people who were professing to be Christians, but they were still preaching that you've got to be holy. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the feast days. You've got to observe the Sabbath. You've got to do these things or God will reject you. And he said, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. He goes on to say in verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Boy, there's a bunch in here, but basically he's saying they are self-serving. They are doing it for their own benefit. In another place, he talked about they draw disciples after themselves. And there are people that preach law and legalism because there is just something... The carnal part of man loves to be 
dominated by rules and regulations. I don't know exactly why that is, but I tell you, the flesh loves the religious part where you just do these rules and regulations, and that's what he's talking about, whose uh, God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame. That's talking about they are glorying in their own effort, which, you know, we should be ashamed. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but they are glorying in all of their great accomplishments. And he says, who mind earthly things. You know, this is quite an indictment right here, and I can guarantee you the vast majority of Christians today mind earthly things. Uh, you know, the terminology, may there may be a little disconnect here, but I can guarantee you the average Christian is excited about the things of this world more than they're excited about the things of God. There are people who are excited about who's won the, you know, the latest talent contest, who's on the soap operas, who's doing all of these things, all of the uh, entertainment news and stuff. And just, you know, they're, they're excited. I, I go on the Internet to get reports and stuff, and I see these pictures about somebody's, look at their, their baby bump, and they want to talk about all of these things and who's divorced who lately and who's going out, running out, and they're breaking up and doing this. And I'm thinking, man, this is just carnal, fleshly, ungodly stuff, that, and yet... Sadly, a lot of Christians are just totally occupied with this. They're minding earthly things. If you associate and stay with people like that, it is going to affect your joy. You need to surround yourself with people whose values are on eternal things. You know, we recently uh, got our directors from all over the world together. We got 40 Bible colleges all over the world and we all came together and we had a director's meeting. And I tell you, it was exciting. It was exciting to see the love, the excitement that those directors had for each other. And a comment that we heard more than once is like, we are family. Matter of fact, many of them said, we are closer to these other people who are doing a similar type of thing. And in these foreign countries, laying their life down, serving the Lord, we are closer to them than we are our physical flesh and blood. And, you know, without putting it in these words, what they were doing was they were saying that there is this bond, there's this benefit that comes when you are with people of like mind and heart. And it, and it builds them up. Everybody said since they've left, they've said, man, it was encouraging. It was great to be with you again. This gives us courage to go out on the field for another year and do these things. Your associations, the people that you associate with is one of the most important influences you're going to have in your life. And if you truly want to be happy, then you need to quit associating with people that are dragging you down. Now, again, there's a right and a wrong way. This doesn't mean that you just totally cut yourself off, that you treat people like when you see them coming, that you put, you know, your fingers up and make a cross like they're demonic and you want to avoid them. We need to walk in love. Jesus gave us an example of how to minister to unbelievers. But I am saying that you don't become close. You don't let people begin to start speaking into your life and influencing you who are going to influence you in a negative way. You, your associations are one of the most important things in your life. Look at this verse in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20. This is just one of many verses that make this same point. It says, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. That is so simple. You should not have to have somebody explain this to you. But constantly I find people that just associate with people that are tearing them down. Now again, there is a place to go in and minister to people. But if you, if you are in charge, if you are influencing them, then that would be okay. But for you to go in and make yourself submissive to people who you don't have the freedom to minister to them, you aren't changing them, but instead they are constantly influencing you. That is not a wise place. If you want to be wise, go with wise people. But if you are a companion of fools, you are going to be destroyed. The people you hang out with are a huge influence on you. And if you choose to go and willfully submit to people who are preaching the wrong message, people who are depressed, 
people who are angry, people who are bitter. And if these are the people that you choose to associate yourself with, you are deceived if you think that does not affect you. So one of the secrets of Paul's happiness as he was explaining to these people is you need to hang out with the right people. You need to be following the right people. You need to be listening to the right message. Your associations are an important part of you walking in joy and peace and happiness. You know, my wife and I just this last week went out with three other couples and did some things. And as we were driving home, we were just praising God for the friends that we have. Because when we get around them, they build us up. They encourage us. You know, there's many other scriptures. One of them says that, you know, face answers to face in water. You see your own face. So that when you get around a person, you know, you can see yourself. God speaks to you through that. It says in the same way that flint sharpens uh, an iron and stuff like this, that you a man's countenance sharpers, sharpens his neighbor's... Uh, I forget exactly how that went. I totally butchered that. But the point is that when you get around people that you influence each other. And this is an important part. I remember when Jamie and I first got turned on to the Lord and as we were growing in the Lord, we wouldn't have grown at the same rate we grew at if we didn't have other people around us who were also growing, who were challenging some of the things that we had been taught. We would sit down, and when we got together with our friends, we would just sit down and, I mean, hour after hour discuss Scripture. What do you think this means? And sometimes I didn't agree with them, but, but you know, it was like a sounding board. And even if I disagreed with them, it helped me to understand more what the Scripture said. And we grew through this, um, you know, effect of other people on our life. I don't believe that you'll grow the same in a vacuum as you grow when you're around other people. And so this is an important part of you walking in the joy and the happiness of the Lord is you need to get to where you're associating with the right people. I'm constantly amazed at these people who, you know, are with somebody who's out robbing. They get drunk. They get in trouble with the police. And then some kid who was basically good was just caught in that situation and they're just screaming about, I'm innocent and how dare you judge me? And I'm thinking, you know what? You were guilty in the sense that you're associating with these people. You may not have committed the crime, but why were you with them? You are taking risk. You shouldn't even be around that stuff. I'm telling you, it's important who you hang out with. And that's basically what Paul is saying. You need to be careful who you follow. And if you're around people, they don't have to be out here doing these terrible things. If they're just people who mind earthly things, who are just carnal, they're totally occupied with the things of this world, that carnality will draw you down to their level. If you put a rotten apple with a bunch of good apples, the good apples don't make the rotten apple better. The rotten apple will infect the good. You need to recognize that you need to be careful who you associate with. That's a great part of Paul's secrets to happiness. Let's go down to Philippians chapter 4, and this will be number 14 in these list of things that I've pulled out of the book of Philippians about what made Paul operate in such joy and happiness even in these terrible circumstances. And in verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. If you are going to truly operate in joy and happiness, you have to stand fast. This is talking about that it takes some effort on your part. If you just become, you know, like water that just, you know, tends to go to the lowest level, you the path of least resistance, then you are never going to operate in true joy and happiness. It's going to take some effort on your part to operate in joy. You have to stand fast. You have to make a commitment. You know, there's scriptures that say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Uh, for you to make a statement like that, I can guarantee you there's going to be times that you don't feel like blessing the Lord at all times. And you're just going to have to make a commitment that I am going to operate in joy. And then you're going to have to stand fast and hold on to that commitment. There's times that you won't feel like it. And if you just let your feelings control you instead of you controlling them, then you won't be able to do this. 
You know, I've got an entire series. I think it's four teachings in this series entitled Harnessing Your Emotions. And it and a lot of these things that are Paul is talking about right here, about just making a commitment and choosing to operate in joy even when you don't feel like it, that's explained to a greater detail in that series. But this is really important that you just have to stand fast. You know, many of you have heard me tell this story before, but my son died and I was called and woke up at 4.15 in the morning by my oldest son saying, and he said, Dad, I'm sorry, but uh, Peter is dead. And I asked him what happened. And then Jamie and I had to get up. We had to get dressed. We started into town. It was an hour and 15 minutes before we knew what the results was. And I began to start feeling grief and sorrow and the same things that anybody would feel if you were told that your son was dead. But I just did what this said. I had made a decision that I was going to bless the Lord at all times. His praise would continually be in my mouth. See, some people say, oh, yeah, I'm going to praise the Lord. But even unspoken maybe in fine print in parentheses, except when it's inconvenient, except when I don't feel like it. See, the scripture didn't put any of those qualifications on it. It just said, I will bless the Lord at all times. And you have to stand fast on this commitment. So when we were driving into town, I began to start feeling the grief and the sorrow, the same as anybody else would if you were told that your child died. And yet I just stood fast and I began to start praising God and saying, God, I am not going to let this take away my joy. I am not going to let this change my attitude towards you. You are a good God. You did not kill my son. And I just started praising him and standing fast and doing what I knew to do even when I didn't feel like doing it. And I personally believe that that was one of the main keys to seeing my son raised from the dead after he had been dead for over four hours, nearly five hours. I believe that when you praise God, it makes a difference. And so I just had to stand fast. You're going to have to take these scriptures. I've used lots of scriptures and shown you how it's God's will for you to have joy. And he told you to cheer up even when you're in tribulation. John 16, 33 and many other scriptures And you're just going to have to commit yourself to doing it. And sometimes you're going to have to praise God even through gritted teeth. But you have to stand fast and do it. And let me just jump on down to verse 4. This is really, this is number 15 in the list of things that made Paul uh, rejoice in the Lord. And it's really just an amplification on what we were just talking about. He said, stand fast. You know the truth, now stand, do it. Do what you know to do. And in verse 14, he gives a command. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. You know, this is unusual, the wording of this. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Why did he say it again? I personally believe it was because this was such a radical statement that people would have thought, well, he must not mean what he's saying because you can't rejoice in the Lord always. You can't rejoice in the Lord if things are going bad. And so they just kind of interpret it in in a way. And so lest anybody misunderstand what he was saying, he said, again, I say rejoice. He made this radical statement twice, right in succession to each other to emphasize the point that in every situation, always, You are to rejoice. And you know, this goes against our culture today, just as it did in Paul's day. There are people watching this that you have been taught that you're in denial if you don't sit there and have all of these problems. I've given some of these examples. Maybe you've heard them. But I remember one woman who, she was about 24 or something like that at the time that I ministered and I was ministering along these lines how you can just forgive people. You can let things go and it doesn't matter what people are doing to you. You can rejoice in spite of it. She came up to me after the message was over and told me that when she was 12 years old, she got born again in a church service and her grandfather who lived in the home had been sexually abusing her nearly every day of her life from the time she was old enough to remember. When she got born again, She just got totally forgiven and cleansed. She brought this out in the open. The parents got violently mad at the grandfather for doing this, kicked him out of the home, took the girl to therapy, and the therapist 
basically said that she's not confronting her fears because when she got born again, she forgave her grandfather. It's not like she enjoyed or, or thought it was right what he had done to her, but she just was forgiven. And she forgave her grandfather and she didn't hold any bitterness and she wasn't talking about her terrible repressed fears and hurts and pains. And so the psychotherapist or whatever you call those people, begin to criticize her as she's in denial. Then the parents got on her case and you are you should be suffering. You should be hurting. And because she didn't have all of these terrible problems, there was so much problems between her and her parents that within a year or two, this girl basically was kicked out of the home. And I forget the exact details, but it was like she was 16 or something and she was out on her own. And even people in church had told her that she wasn't really... Uh, over it because she didn't have any bitterness. She wasn't angry. She had been forgiven. She forgave her grandfather. She had gone on with her life. And here I was in a church service and she came up and she says, you are the first Christian minister that has said that you can get over things, that you can rejoice in the Lord regardless of what's happening to you. She said, everybody else is telling me I'm supposed to be scarred and limp through life for the rest of my life. That I can understand a person without the Lord being that way, but when you factor Jesus into it and how He can totally forgive you and cleanse you, well then I believe just like Paul is saying that you need to rejoice in the Lord always, under all circumstances. Even if you were abused as a child, even if you've been divorced, even if somebody has slandered you, even if you've got sickness in your body, even if you're suffering financial problems, you need to rejoice in the Lord always. And I know that there's people right now saying you can't do that. And it's because in your way of thinking, joy is a result of circumstances. But that is not true. Joy is found in a person. And I don't care what you do. If you took everything from me financially, I've still got my relationship with the Lord and I could rejoice even if I was poor. I've been poor and I rejoiced when I was poor. I could do it again. If if you took my health from me, you know what? I could still rejoice. Somebody might say, but you're going to die. Well, the Bible says that for me to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you were really thinking correctly, death isn't an end for anything. It's just stepping into a better life. You could rejoice even in that kind of situation. Somebody says, but you know, I'm going through a divorce. You can rejoice going through a divorce if nothing else. Focus on this, that the Lord said, I've engraven you upon the palms of my hand. Says a mother might forget her child, but I'll never forget you. Man, if nothing else, rejoice in the fact that although you were probably a part of the problem in this marriage, you know, divorce is seldom just one-sided. Even though you might have been a part of the problem, God will never divorce you. I don't care how bad you get. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You could rejoice in that. You can rejoice going through a divorce. You can rejoice in anything. This says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Today, people do not believe that's possible. Matter of fact, they will even criticize you. I had a friend recently who lost their mate. And even though they missed their mate, I mean, they were married for over 50-something years, this person is just rejoicing in the Lord. And they're drawing on the ability of God. That doesn't mean that they don't love their husband, that they don't miss them, but they have found the solace in the Lord. Matter of fact, another friend of mine that I'm thinking of right now, I've known this guy for decades. I knew him and his wife. His wife used to work for me. But yet she died just a few years ago and I've gone over to his house a few times to check on him and see how he's doing. And this man says, people don't understand, but I'm happier than I've ever been. And it's not because he doesn't have his wife around and he's happy that she's gone. No, it was when she left, he realized he was codependent upon her. He was using her companionship and these things to grant him satisfaction. When she was gone, it nearly killed him. He nearly couldn't live. And by just the urgency of the matter, he threw himself upon God and called out for God. And God has met his need. He has such a deeper relationship with God now because he was forced into being dependent upon God 
that he says, I wouldn't trade where I am now for before. Even though he loved his wife, he misses his wife, he is experiencing God in the midst of a negative situation in a way that is so awesome, it's better than it's ever been before. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what you're going through. You can rejoice in the Lord always. And this isn't a suggestion. This is a command. It's a command to rejoice in the Lord always. Let me say this. You know, joy is a noun. Rejoice is a verb. Somebody says, what's the difference? What's the significance? A noun is describing a person, place, or thing. It's describing something that exists. Rejoice is describing something that you do. You may not always feel joy. You may not have joy. But you can always rejoice. I don't care what's going on. That example I gave earlier about my son when he died, I didn't feel like rejoicing, but I started rejoicing in the Lord. I started doing something with my mouth. I started saying the right things, the things that I knew I was supposed to say. I started doing what was right. And you know, I don't know exactly how this works, but I I liken it to like a well. You've got all of this water, this life-giving water in the well, but you could die of thirst unless you can draw that up out of that well and get it into your mouth. When you start rejoicing, you may not have that joy yet. It may not be really flowing in you, but you are acting in faith. You are doing what the Word says, even if you don't feel like it. That's like sticking a bucket down in that well And as you start rejoicing, you are drawing this joy that's in your spirit. Galatians 5, 22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. You've got joy in your spirit. And when you start rejoicing, when you start saying and acting the right way, I don't care how you feel, you are sticking that bucket down in you and you're drawing this joy that's in your heart out. You may actually start rejoicing in the flesh but you wind up in the Spirit because you started acting on the Word of God. Actions will literally precipitate the flow of God's power and it'll release. It reaches out and appropriates what is in the spiritual realm. Sometimes you have to start in the physical to wind up in the spiritual. You have to start lifting your hands and worshiping God. The Bible says when you lift up your hands in the sanctuary, you bless the Lord. This is praising God and you start doing it. Some of you may feel like falling on your face and crying and screaming or hitting a wall, but instead you do what the Word of God tells you. You rejoice in the Lord. It didn't say joy in the Lord. Sometimes you just don't have joy. It's in your spirit. It's not out in your flesh, but you can always act appropriately. You can begin to start blessing the Lord even when you don't feel like it. Sometimes you may have to do it through gritted teeth. Sometimes you may be hurting so bad that what you want to do is cry and yet you sit there and you just start saying, Father, I bless you. I thank you. You are a good God. And you start praising Him. And as you do that, it draws this joy that's in your spirit out. I don't know if I'm making that clear to you, but I tell you, that is important. I couldn't tell you the number of times, there's been much bunches of times that I have literally just felt like crying and yet I don't want to sit there and be depressed and discouraged. And I just started praising God because I knew it was the right thing to do. I was standing steadfast and I was just rejoicing in the Lord, going against my own feelings. And as I did that, I've literally caused the joy of the Lord to rise up on the inside of me. I've done this multiple times. You know, I really believe that the discouragement and despair, some of it may be just natural as you go through life, but a lot of it is demonic. We have demonic powers that are constantly trying to discourage us. You know, if Satan could get me defeated and discouraged, I minister to millions of people and that would pass right along to you and it and Satan would be able to use me as a tool to discourage other people. And so I have to keep myself encouraged. And I believe that not all discouragement that comes against me is just natural. Some of it is demonic. Well, how do you break demonic stuff? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 21, he was quoting from Psalms chapter 8 and he said, uh, Have you not read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? 
And it says over in Psalms 8 where he was quoting from, it says, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength. So Jesus there substituted the word praise for strength. And it goes on to say in Psalms chapter 8 verse 2 that the purpose of this is to still the enemy and the avenger. So put all of this together and what you have is that when you start praising God, it is a weapon against the devil. It's strength. It stills the enemy and the avenger. Satan is an absolute egomaniac. In Isaiah chapter 14, it says the reason he rebelled against God is because he says, I'm going to be like the Most High God. He wasn't, he didn't hate God. He was jealous of God. He wanted all of the praise and the worship that was going to God to be for himself. And so he's always been trying to divert people's attention away from worshiping God and towards him. And when you just start praising God and giving glory to God, that's the very thing that Satan has always wanted that he's never been able to obtain. And it just is like rubbing his nose in his defeat. He can't stand it. Demons flee when you praise God. There's examples of this in the Old Testament that when they played with music and worshiped the Lord, the evil spirits departed. And in another instance, Elisha worshiped the Lord and the anointing fell upon him. Psalms chapter 22 says that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. When you go to praising God, I don't care even if you aren't totally feeling it at the moment, but you're doing it in faith with a pure heart saying, I'm going to praise you through gritted teeth if I have to. But you start praising God. It is a weapon against the devil. It is strength. It makes him flee from you. You are resisting the devil when you don't give in to your negative emotions. And it causes the devil to flee. It releases the anointing and the power of God. I tell you, praise is one of the most important things that you can possibly do. I've got a series of teaching on this. I've got a book and a series talking about the effects of praise. And I believe that praise is actually one of the most healthy things that you can do for your Christian life. When, if you aren't praising God, it's like uh, you can take your pulse here and tell if you know your heartbeat is strong. If a person was to pass out and if they were wondering are they dead or alive, one of the first things they'll do is take their pulse to see if their heart's still beating. Well, operating in praise is like taking your spiritual pulse. If you aren't praising God, I don't care what your circumstances are. There are no exceptions. There is no justification for this. If you aren't praising God, you are not healthy spiritually. If you are praising God, that is a sign of spiritual health. It means you're looking beyond your problem. And by faith, you're perceiving that God's bigger than this problem. You are going to survive. Even if you died, you would survive because you go to be with the Lord and you're going to live forever in eternity. And so you just choose to start going beyond physical things and you start operating in the spiritual realm. It's a sign of, of Christian maturity. It's a sign of Christian health, spiritual health. And so I'm telling you, just like the Apostle Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I mean always. Always means always. It means at all times. It means regardless of what you're going through, just start praising and rejoicing in the Lord. And I can guarantee you a large number of you are going through bad problems and things that you don't feel like praising God. And you are just going to let your feelings dominate you instead of the Word of God. This is a command. And if you would just take it that God supernaturally had you listen to me say these things... And if you were to just start praising God, and I mean not do it for five seconds, and if the heavens open up and angels begin to sing, then you'll continue to do it. No, you're just going to praise God. And if you have to go all day long praising God, not feeling like it, you are going to do what the Word says. If you would do that with a pure heart and say, God, help me, I'm acting on what the Word of God says. And if you would do this, I could guarantee you that by the end of this day, you would see an improvement. You would begin to see the clouds clear and the sun come out. You would begin to start having God give you hope. It's just like these other scriptures I was using. It's strength. It stills the enemy and the avenger. It'll drive the devil off. It'll encourage you and build you up. And if you would just do it, it's like priming the pump. 
And once you start doing it, even if you don't feel like doing it, it won't be long until that born again self on the inside of you, the love and the joy and the peace that's inside of you will start coming out and it will make a difference. And you'll be able to praise God from a genuine heart. I mean, really praising God in the midst of your bad situation. And it'll actually help get you through that situation quicker. I could spend a lot of time on each one of these things, but I'm wanting to get on through. So let me just drop down to verse 6. Here's another secret to his happiness. It says in verse 6, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Boy, this is big. And again, in a way, I'm not doing justice to this by rushing through it, but... Uh, I am going to rush through it. I've spent four weeks on these things and I'm wanting to end up by this Friday. But this is really big that instead of taking care about all of these things, we need to cast our care over on the Lord. And we do that through prayer and supplication. We let our requests be made known unto God. This could go back and, and touch some of these other things that I've mentioned up in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, about knowing Him, having a personal relationship with God. Most people just, in a sense, use God only when things get beyond their ability, but they pretty much try and handle everything on their own and only take the big things to God. You know, I had a guy one time that I was praying for, and he, he told me that he had pain starting in his head, going down his neck, his spine. He had a sciatic nerve problem neuropathy in the feet. And he just went from head to toe and named like a dozen different things. But then he came back and he said, but it's the pain in the neck that's really bad. And if God could just heal the pain in the neck, I could deal with the rest. And I responded to that by saying, oh, well, I understand. I mean, you know, God isn't able to handle all of these things at one time. If we asked him to heal you from head to toe, the lights in heaven might dim. Let's not ask God to do something that would be too hard. <laughs> and he just interrupted me and he said, all right, I get it. He says, that was pretty dumb what I said, wasn't it? And I said, yeah, it's real dumb. I said, God can do all of these things. But see, he, he had this mindset that I'm preaching against here that he was saying, oh God, I can handle the others. You know, if you would just do this one thing that I can handle. We feel somehow or another that we need to somehow be able to work out all of life's problems on our own and only bring the things that are beyond our control to God. That is one of the reasons people are stressed out and aren't happy. I believe that we're supposed to be careful for nothing. The word careful here means anxious or worried. We aren't supposed to be anxious or worried about anything. Nothing. Zilch. Zero. Nada. You know, personally, and again, I, a lot of people will think I'm weird, but I've said this before. I think you're weird if you don't follow this. I just don't get stressed out over anything. I, it doesn't matter what it is. I just pray over everything. I commit everything to the Lord. And I know that there's a lot of people think, well, you're supposed, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Where's that verse in the Bible? <laughs> people quote that like it's a scripture. There is not a scripture that says that. No, we're supposed to be careful for nothing in everything. You know, in the Greek, the word everything means everything. There is nothing that we aren't supposed to petition the Lord about and trust God to take care of. You know, I do a tremendous amount of work around my property. I, I make things out of wood. I have a lathe. I cut and I, I build things and do all it. You know, I pray about every bit of it. Somebody said, well, God just wants you to use your own head. Well, I use, you know, the brain that I've got. I follow plans but I also ask God to help me. I believe that it would work better that way and I don't take any worry or care about it. I pray over everything. That's exactly what this is saying. You know, often when you see people, they say, well, take care. And I always go for nothing. <laughs> Amen. I hate that expression when people say take care. And I know that they mean it in a different way. But the first thing I think of is be careful for nothing. I just cast all of my care over on the Lord, knowing that He cares for me. Let me share this passage with you out of 1 Peter in chapter 5. It says in um, 
verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all of your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Those verses go together. It says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. And then verse 7, Casting all of your care upon Him. If you aren't casting your care upon the Lord, then you're in pride. You know, many people wouldn't see it that way. But that's what this is saying. It says, humble yourself, and then it says, casting all of your care. If you aren't casting your care over on the Lord, you know what? You are taking too much responsibility for your life. God did not create us to operate independent of Him. He gave us that choice. It's an option, but the right choice is to choose Him and to be totally dependent upon God and let God give you direction in everything. You know, we had just recently been talking about uh, on this four-wheel trip that we took about hitting deer and stuff. And so as I was driving in today, I remember just sitting there and thinking, Father, help me not to hit a deer. I've hit a number of deer. I even hit one elk. I had a guy recently ask me if I went hunting, and I said, well, not with a gun, but with the car. I'm really good at it, man. And uh, anyway, I was praying as I came in today, and I just had the thought about, you know, there's deer everywhere. I nearly hit a deer yesterday. And I remember just praying and casting my care about that over on the Lord and asking God to help me not to hit a deer. I have hit some, but praise God, it's never hurt me. I've never got even a scratch out of it. And so I cast my care over on the Lord about everything. And if you say, oh, well, that's stupid. I'd never pray about stuff like this and stuff. Well, then the scripture here is saying that you haven't humbled yourself. You think that you are sufficient to run your life and only use God as an escape valve or a safety valve. When you run into trouble, then you run to God. You know what that is? That's arrogance. I know most people wouldn't term it that way, but that's exactly what the Scripture is saying right here. You cast all of your care upon Him, knowing that He cares for you. You know, it doesn't bother you when your little child comes to you and says, Daddy or Mama, can you help me do something? There's times that you'll teach them, well, you can do this, and you guide them, but you enjoy having that relationship. You like your children depending upon you. Likewise, your heavenly Father likes us casting all of our care upon Him. And I honestly, I just don't take care for things. I'm not saying I do this perfectly. I still, there's some things, sometimes some of the pressures of the ministry and, you know, we're going through a major reorganization and there's been people who've been friends of mine who've been with me for over 20 years who left the ministry and stuff. And it's, you know, it's okay. We're still friends and stuff, but I have taken care of it. I have to intentionally cast my care over and pray and God help me to love this person, help them to love me and do things. There's things that I'm not perfect in this, but I'm saying that to a very large degree, I just live my life casting my care over on the Lord. And this is what, Paul was saying here in Philippians chapter 4, one of the secrets to the fact that he was happy and able to rejoice even in prison was that he was careful for nothing. You know, specifically in Philippi, Paul was in the stocks, in the dungeon, with this back beaten, facing possible execution. You know, many people would figure that that is a good time to be depressed. That is a good time to worry. But Paul cast his care over on the Lord. He wasn't careful about it. And he started singing and worshiping the Lord. I don't believe that Paul was somehow or another just not human like the rest of us. I think that Paul had the same temptations that you and I face. He could have sat there and worried. He could have thought about, God, I know that there's something more that you have for me to do. This is How's this going to affect other people? How's it going to affect my ministry? I don't want to die. He could have gone through all of the stuff that most of us would have gone through. But Paul, he's telling us right here how he did it. He wasn't careful about this. He wasn't worried about it. He wasn't anxious. Paul had said, we've already dealt with this in Philippians chapter 1, that he had a strong desire to depart and go to heaven and be with the Lord. But he realized it was more needful to be here in the flesh. And so he had decided to stay here because it was beneficial to other people. But if it was just up to him, he was glad to die and go to be with the Lord. And I believe facing possible execution, instead of worrying about it and saying, thinking, what can I do? 
He was just worshiping the Lord God. This is awesome. If I go to be with you, this would be just great. And he just cast his care about facing possible execution, totally unjust, over on the Lord. There are some of you that, you know, somebody's just said something against you and it's unjust. But there, you aren't going to die through it. Nobody's going to do anything bad. You just don't like the criticism. And because you've been treated unfairly, you just worry about it and think about it. And you are anxious and careful and worried about it. You have, in a sense, exalted yourself. You aren't depending upon God. You're depending upon yourself. You're trying to work all of this out. I'm telling you, it is therapeutic to just come to the end of yourself and say, God, this is bigger than you. I can't handle it. So I'm just casting the care about this over on you and you let God deal with it. You know, we've got a little cartoon that we keep and it shows a guy sitting up in bed and his eyes are bloodshot. It, you can tell by looking at him that he has not been able to sleep and he's just sitting there and he's shaking because he's so traumatized and stressed out over something. And then there's one of these little, you know, uh, bubbles that come out and the uh, thing goes up to God. You can tell it's God saying this. And you see this voice from God coming out saying, my child, go to sleep. I'm going to be up all night anyway. And the point is that, you know, why should he worry about it when God never slumbers, never sleeps? He's going to be up. Just cast your care about it over on the Lord and let God take care of it. You know, right now we have to have about $3 million a month just to pay our bills. I need more than that because we've now started on our phase two construction at our Karis Bible College campus. And it's going to be over $30 million. And you know what? That's more money than I've got. I don't have $30 million. Some people would say, well, man, doesn't that stress you out? I could be anxious about it. I could be thinking and just worrying, oh God, how are we going to get this money or how are we going to do this? But you know, honestly, I never have lost a night's sleep over this. I just cast my care over on the Lord. I hadn't got it. It's up to God. I believe God told me to do this. And if God told me to do it, God will bring the money in. It's not my responsibility. Did you know, actually, I used to worry and be anxious and careful about finances when our ministry was real small. Because when it was small... You know, if worse came to worse, I could quit the ministry. I could go get a secular job and I could pay off these debts and there was a way to escape. There was something I could do. But now that we have to have $3 million a month just to survive and more than that to thrive, uh, you know what? It's just way beyond my control. I couldn't quit the ministry and go get a job and pay this off in a lifetime. And it is so far beyond me that I don't take care and worry about it because unless God comes through, I'm just dead in the water. There's no way for me to do this on my own. I can't make this ministry work if it wasn't for God. And it's actually easier on me now than it was back when the ministry was small and I could have done something. And it all goes back to this one thing right here. Back when it was small, I was taking care because there was something I could have done. There was a plan B or a plan C that might work if God didn't come through. Now, there is no other plan. And it actually is easier on me. And I'm telling you, this is one of the secrets to Paul's success and happiness is that he just didn't worry about things. When he was facing execution, fine. If they kill me, just fine. And he started praising God. If they let him go, he was going to be persecuted. That was just fine. He, he went out and he just cast his care over on the Lord. Things were in God's hands. I'm telling you, if you are feeling the responsibility of making everything work on your own, it's, it's not a good place to be. And it actually hinders the Lord from operating. I've used this example before, but my youngest son, Peter, didn't talk until he was over three years old. And uh, we didn't worry about it because I didn't talk until I was over three years old. And they took me to the doctor and the doctor examined me and says, there's nothing wrong with this kid. Why should he talk when he's got four people that all he's got to do is point and grunt and you'll get him anything he wants? And they said, you just need to make him start talking. And my first memory that I ever have is I wanted a glass of milk and my mother filled up a glass and set it on top of the refrigerator and says, you will get it when you say milk. 
And the first memory I have is falling down on the floor and crying and thinking, "Uh uh-oh, the jig is up. You know, I am now going to have to start earning my keep around here. I'm going to have to start talking. Well, anyway, because of that experience, I wasn't worried about my son not talking. But when he was three years old, it was time for him to talk. So we started telling him that, you know what, you aren't going to get things unless you talk. And we were coming out of a restroom at the Royal Gorge in Colorado one time, and the spring on the door was so heavy that it was hard to open, even for me. I mean, it took nearly two hands to open that door. And my son tried to open the door, and he had both hands over that doorknob, and he was pulling on it, and he even put his foot on the door, and, of course, that hindered it even more. And he grunted and looked at me, and I knew exactly what he wanted. But I said, "You, I'm not going to open the door until you say please. I was trying to get him to talk. And he just started crying. He would not let go of that door. And there was other people coming. So eventually, I had to open the door. But I told him, I said, you're going to have to let go of that doorknob because he had both hands around it. I would have had to get a good grip on it. It would have squeezed his hands. I knew he wouldn't like it. So I just had to wait until he let go before I could do anything. And as soon as that happened, I was dealing with some things. I don't remember the specifics right now, but I was taking care for stuff. And as soon as I said, Peter, you've got to let go before I can solve this situation. As soon as I said that, the Lord spoke to me and he said, Andrew, that's exactly the way it is with you. As long as I was taking care about this situation, God couldn't handle it. You have to let go. You have to cast your care over on the Lord, knowing that He cares for you. You have to quit being careful. You need to pray. And in prayer, cast your care about things over on the Lord and make it His problem. I've actually gone to the Lord before and said, God, you've got a problem. (laughs) It was actually, most people would say it was my problem, but I was doing what God told me to do. And so I said, God, you've got a problem. As far as I know, I'm following you. You've got a problem. You've got to fix this situation. That's what Paul is advocating. And I tell you, that is a huge secret to success is you've got to quit trying to do everything and resolve everything by yourself and pray about it. There are some of you right now that are trying to fix your mate and you're trying to make them do this and make them come over to this point of view and you're trying to do all of these things, but you hadn't really prayed about it. I tell you, you, it'd be much better off to pray about it. You know, I make my living talking and if You know, Jamie and I get into an argument. We seldom ever argue. There's been very few arguments. But if we got into an argument, I could win because I make my living talking. But you know what? When Jamie shuts up and she just looks at me and I can tell she's praying and she's talking to God and she's asking God, I might as well run up the white flag. I might could out-argue Jamie, but I am never going to out-argue God. And when Jamie just chews that path of submission and quits whining and nagging and instead she prays and lets God get on my case, I'm a goner. I'm done for. I am not going to win that one. And I'm telling you that there are some of you that God can't get a word in edgewise to your mate because you're saying so much. You are constantly talking. You need to be careful for nothing. You need to quit taking the responsibility of trying to change your mate. That's actually witchcraft. You aren't supposed to change anybody. You're supposed to love them as they are. Maybe they need to change. Maybe you desire them to change, but you're supposed to love them the way that they are. And then you just pray about it and you let God deal with that person instead of you doing it. I'm speaking to some people right now that the Lord is speaking to you through me and He's telling you that you make a very poor Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is supposed to convict us, not you. And because you are talking so loud, even if the Holy Spirit does speak to them, they aren't going to recognize it as being the Holy Spirit because you've already said all of those things to them. You need to cast your care over on the Lord and you need to say, God, they are your problem. You're the one that led me into this marriage. You're the one that led me to this job. You're the one that called me to do these things. God, you take care of this and you pray and let your request be made known unto God. I'm telling you, prayer 
casting your cares over on the Lord through talking to the Lord about it instead of you taking all of the responsibility is a huge secret of success. And I'm, there's not many Christians using that. Lots of times what we do in prayer, it's not truly prayer. It's just griping and complaining, telling God how bad everything is. That's not what this is talking about. But it says, just be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious, but just say, Father, this is yours. I turn this person over to you. I turn these finances over to you. I turn my job over to you. I turn these relationships over. Whatever, you just cast over on the Lord because He cares for you. Humble yourself and admit that you can't do everything on your own and make God your source. And it says that you do that in the next verse. It says, The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If you truly quit taking care and quit being anxious and worried over all of these things, and if you cast your care over on the Lord, then the next step will be that peace just floods your heart. And I tell you what, peace is invaluable. You can't buy peace. Peace is something that just comes when you are in relationship with God. You are not taking the responsibility. You cast your care over on the Lord. There is a peace that passes understanding that will just flood your heart and will cause you to rejoice. I believe that that's what happened with Paul and Silas when they were in this Philippian jail. They cast their care over on the Lord. They knew God sent them there. They did what God told them to do. They didn't compromise. They were willing if death was the result, they were willing to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And they just started praying and casting this care. And then peace welled up in their heart and they just broke out in song. I believe that this will cause happiness to rule in your life if you would follow these instructions. 